agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Garrett Nyman. He has a BA in economics from Stanford, an MBA from Harvard Business School, and a master's in public policy from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. He was a founding CEO of College Spring, a national college access nonprofit a co-creator of Liberation Ventures, a philanthropic fund focused on building power toward reparations, a senior fellow at Prosperity Now, and an adjunct lecturer at the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality. He's also the author of the recently released book, Rich White Men, What It Takes to Uproot the Old Boys Club and Transform America, which we'll be talking about today. Gary Nyman, welcome to the show. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Mike. So I thought I'd start with what seems like an obvious question. Um, what's the problem with rich white men? I appreciate you asking. The, the way I see it is a, a little bit different from my perspective. You know, even as somebody who wrote a book called Rich White Men, I see it less as an issue about rich white men as, as individuals or even as a group and more of an issue of what happens when power is severely concentrated in society. And the critique I offer in this in the book is really about the extent to which power is concentrated in the United States and how that power is being wielded currently. Yeah. And I think just from a book title perspective, concentration of power in the United States, it doesn't really grab you the same way that rich white men does. So, uh, so there's that, but, you know, and I think, when we focus on issues of inequality and oftentimes the issues of, of, of racism or race that go along with them, uh, on a bipartisan show like this, I, I'm positive that a number of listeners are, are thinking something along the lines of, yeah, okay, there's inequality, there's racism, but let's not just focus on now, let's look back and haven't things gotten significantly better? And so is there really a problem here? Or is the real problem that there are people who want to sort of force change at a faster pace than society might be willing to go along with or might be able to even cope with? Absolutely. It's a, it's a good question and one that comes up often uh, that America is an interesting place that in some ways we've had uh, extraordinary progress and in other ways, you know, things have very much stayed the same. So, for example, you know, having a country that went from slavery to Jim Crow to the civil rights movement, you know, those are massive shifts. Granted, they took centuries, but those are massive shifts uh, for a, a country to make over time. And then on the other hand, it's also true that the typical Black American in this country still holds very, very much close to zero wealth. You know, and that's a reality that has been stagnant for, for 400 years. You know, so it's this, it's this interesting mix of a country where in some ways there's real progress, but when you've looked at who has economic power in this country, and in American capitalism, economic power is really important. Uh, folks like Black Americans have largely been uh, left out of that, and that has continued uh, since the 60s. And the only other thing I wanted to mention about this question about the rapidity of change is that we're actually at a moment where change is happening extremely fast. Like when I think about things like uh, globalization, automation, uh, the internet, social media, 
uh, augmented reality, AI. These are these are massive, very fast shifts uh, that society is experiencing. And basically, what I call for in the book is that the notion that we need to be more cautious about rapid change that lines the pocketbooks of rich white men uh, and more open-minded uh, to fast-paced change uh, that uh, doesn't have that same impact for rich white men. I, I, I think when you talk about caution, about rapid change, there's a, a part of my sort of Burkean soul that, that lights up at that, although I, I would probably go a little further than you, even though uh, politically I certainly am a person of the left. And, and I guess maybe more to that point, do you think that folks who say any sort of rapid change, whether it's for things that we think are, or we even you know, believe in our hearts are good, carries with it a certain element of risk and that we need to balance sort of the carrying capacity of a society to deal with change, regardless of whether it you know, lines rich white men's or anyone's pockets or not, with the potential good it can do or the potential harm for moving too quickly and that sort of uh, concern about hubris. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's definitely wisdom in the notion that uh, having a society metabolize change, you know, there's, there's value in that idea. There's value in that approach. And it's very much the case that there are changes that historically in this country have made many Americans uncomfortable in the moment, uh, but in retrospect, end up being some of our proudest moments. So for example, you know, in the 60s, the approval rate for Dr. King was uh, similar to the uh, approval approval rating for the Black Lives Matter movement leading up to 2020. You know, and, you know, ultimately, you know, the country now looks back on Dr. King's contributions as uh, someone who made an enormous positive difference in this country. So there's also this pattern of, you know, changes that make people uh, uncomfortable in the moment, but later they look on proudly. And so I think we need to to balance that out, that there's a, something to be said for making people a little bit uncomfortable, you know, in the pursuit of change that, that ultimately they embrace. Yeah. I, another maybe way of approaching this, at least from the right, is that let, let's say even on equality, at least putting racism to the side, which is a big thing to put to the side. But even if inequality is rising, and sure seems to me that by a lot of measures it is, even so, well, you know, Life in a lot of ways is getting better for almost everyone. I mean, people at almost all income levels have access to astounding technology, you know, smartphones, entertainment, that even the wealthiest people of, of half a century ago, or even a couple of generations ago, didn't have because, of course, those technologies didn't exist. And this is the system that built them. And so I think the argument is basically to sum it up is, well, there's a rising tide that's really lifting almost all the boats. And so does it really matter if some of those boats are lifted significantly higher than others? And I wanted to get your take on that. It's, it's absolutely, absolutely a fair uh, question. And I think it's something that a lot of people are curious about and pay attention to. I think my my main take on it is that I would argue that the rising tide isn't lifting all boats uh, in the way that uh, that many describe. That uh, Matthew Desmond has some good text on this in his new book on poverty that came out in March, where he makes the point that while certain luxuries have become more accessible to a greater number of people, things like uh, televisions, computers, smartphones, and so forth uh, have been democratized to an extent. 
you know, that the basics that humans need to survive, food, water, shelter, healthcare, uh, that for many low and middle income Americans, they're spending a higher and higher percentage uh, of their incomes on their basic needs, which means that their basic needs are actually becoming less accessible. And I think about places like New Mexico, where, you know, 30% of the indigenous uh, population doesn't have access to clean water. Uh, that wasn't the case uh, pre-colonization 500 years ago. So like there are concrete ways that at least for some people in this country, you know, things are worse than they were uh, centuries ago. That's not to minimize uh, project progress, technological innovations and so forth. But I, I do think we need to be really clear about the fact that uh, if basic needs are becoming less accessible, uh, that's a big problem because it's it's hard to enjoy a Netflix show if you're if you're starving. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just thinking if I had to choose between clean water and availability of health care and, and Hulu or something like that, I, I think I'd go with, with the first two, though. It might be difficult yeah, at some point. But yeah, me too. There were other people who would say, OK, there are some problems, some real problems, but to a large extent, they believe or they would argue that they're related to things like uh, dysfunctional families or, or work ethic, cultural attitudes, even of certain groups. Basically, I think the idea is that if you're not succeeding in a meritocratic society, more often than not, it's going to be not we shouldn't be blaming the system. But we should be looking at those individuals and say, hey, maybe you didn't work hard enough or maybe you gave up too quickly or, or, or something else. And, and I wanted to get your response to people who oftentimes would, would you know, have views like that of our, our current situation. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the way I think about this is that, as I understand it, the debate about equity in this country, which really has been a debate that's been ongoing for for 400 years, is this question about, you know, does discrimination, uh, discrimination explain disparities? And so, you know, that there's, uh, you know, on the, the left, you know, there's, there's at least a portion of the left that would say that uh, if we're talking about anti-Black racism, for example, that uh, historical and contemporary discrimination fully explains uh, disparities, whereas others would say uh, that that explains some of it or or some folks might even say not any of it uh, any longer. And the the way I think about this is that if if you're going to make a claim that a group is genetically uh, genetically inferior or culturally inferior or behaviorally inferior, the burden of proof really falls on you in an extreme way because that's a very dangerous claim to make. And I don't actually think there's a lot of evidence uh, that those claims have merit, that there's been so many audit studies that show uh, how people experience discrimination in a variety of settings. There's so many uh, studies that show uh, that there's uh, unconscious bias in addition to conscious bias uh, that people have. And so uh, if we're if we're not totally clear that discrimination doesn't explain the disparities. I think the default we need to operate under is that uh, they do. And the, my argument for why discrimination does explain disparities is, is through a concept I coined in the book called compounding under an advantage, which is this notion that seemingly small identity-based under an advantages, when they show up in key moments in people's lives, they change trajectories. You know, so for, when I didn't pass the 
gifted exam in second grade, uh, but there's a district workaround that led me to be labeled gifted, that changed the entire trajectory of my life, that it put me on track for AP courses in Stanford and everything that came afterward. And I know that there's uh, people of color in this country who wouldn't have been given the benefit of the doubt and extra help I was given to be put on that path. You know, so it really doesn't take that extreme of discrimination to uh, produce large disparities in our society. So I, I think there's actually a pretty compelling case that discrimination does explain disparities. And I would think I would think that that would be particularly true earlier on in life with things like uh, early life uh, health care and, and family security and educational opportunities and that sort of thing. And that the earlier that would happen, the more of a knock on effect you'd be likely to see later on. Absolutely. And I, I know someone, for example, who, you know, started a national nonprofit that's focused on getting eyeglasses to elementary school kids and high poverty communities of communities of color. And that's great. Uh, but I think it it also begs the question, like, why why is it the case that families don't have the financial resources or government assistance to uh, afford glasses so that their students can see the board uh, during class? That I think if we're not ensuring that people's basic needs are being met in this way, uh, we're not going to be able to to close the gaps that are out there. You know, I feel like sometimes people on both kind of the extremes of the left and the right maybe oversimplify the causality. Here on the right, I tend to hear, well, it's all or almost all about personal decisions and that sort of thing. And that's always wrong, false to me or for most of my life. But on the left, too, I think there's this similar thing, but just to coin the reverse of it, saying that, well, it's all racism, it's all systematic. And I wonder if there's a way to, because I understand the notion to say, well, we don't want to start talking about personal responsibility because then that's all some people are going to focus on. But I can't help but feel that if we can in some way, those of us on the left, acknowledge that, sure, personal responsibility and choices can play a role. But overall, they're likely not to be the largest thing that that might lead to better engagement and a more fruitful conversation with people. And I wonder what you think about that. Absolutely. It's something that I've thought a lot, of, a lot about because I think it can be a real, uh, a real barrier for dialogue that if uh, those of us who have progressive views on the issue of race don't acknowledge that, uh, don't make those acknowledgments that you mentioned, I, I think that it can spark that response. And, you know, I, I believe that, uh, that everyone in this country has some degree of uh, agency, some, some ability to uh, influence their their life. Uh, those to what degree very much varies based on that person's circumstances. But I think it's uh, indisputable that every human being has some level of agency in this country. And so the tricky part, as I understand it, becomes when we start talking about uh, personal responsibility in the context of uh, certain groups uh, are less responsible than other groups. Uh, that's something that I interpret as a racist idea, uh, which is which is different than saying that, you know, some, in, some individuals make better choices than others. If you say that some groups make better choices than others, to me, that that moves into racist territory. Right. Or, or at least even if someone is, is trying to make 
a distinction and talk about groups, it can sure come off as a dog whistle sort of thing to folks who do hold avowedly racist views, which, you know, isn't necessarily, certainly isn't something that, that I would like to see, and I'm sure you wouldn't either. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, so we're talking a lot about race and, and inequality, and those two things, oftentimes, I think to, to many of us on the left, they seem very tightly intertwined. But, you know, when I've talked about inequality and race on the podcast before, as I have a number of times with, with Jay, who's my conservative co-host, he tends to argue that, you know, largely what a lot of progressives see as racism is much more of a socioeconomic issue and so what that, why that's important is that what we need to do is focus less on race and more on improving economic opportunity for everyone, things like empowerment zones and other things like that. And if we do that, a lot of what we think wrongly are racial problems will, if not go away, at least be minimized. And I wanted to get your reaction to that because I'm sure you've heard that argument before. Absolutely. Yeah, that is, as I understand it. Uh, the issue of race and socioeconomic status is it's very much intertwined in, in this country that, and I think what some people forget is that until the sixties, race was class, that we had a, a formal, uh, formal hierarchy in big parts of this country, uh, that said that if you were black, you were part of a, a lower class, uh, status, uh, than if you were white, you know, so it was really, not until the civil rights movement could we even have a discussion about whether race and socioeconomic issues, you know, are, are different. You know, it just had been fundamentally the case pretty much categorically, uh, that there was a black underclass in this country. And so if that's your starting point in the sixties, you know, to me, it's going to be obvious that those issues are going to remain, uh, remain intertwined, you know, that the, uh, the poorest communities in this country, for example, are, are Black, Indigenous, and Latinx predominantly communities. And so like when we look at the issue of concentrated poverty, uh, that that really is a uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color uh, experience. Obviously, there's exceptions like Appalachia and so forth. Uh, but for the most part, you know, those unique characteristics of an underclass of folks who uh, both are... Uh, both don't have financial resources themselves and who are part of uh, communities that don't have those financial resources is predominantly a people of color experience. Uh, the only other thing I would say on this is I, uh, I think part of why I bristle when folks on the right talk about, oh, it's a socioeconomic issue and not a racial issue is that I also don't feel like uh, there's much recognition that uh, this, that this country uh, and certainly on the right has done very much to uh, to level the playing field uh, for those who are in poverty, regardless of their uh, race, that social mobility in this country is dramatically down. And in my analysis, a lot of that has to do with how those who hold high levels of wealth are taking intentional measures to protect that wealth and power that they hold. So I, I don't see the right doing a whole lot uh, for people in poverty. And frankly, I don't really see that uh, from the bulk of the Democratic Party either, uh, that there's a, a willingness to ignore that population, regardless of race, in addition to pressure to uh, not talk about race either. Well, well, I guess they're not the people who donate the, the big bucks to campaigns and, and, and so forth. And I think that makes a real difference. 
Oh, absolutely. That's a, a major attention point. And I think that's, you know, fundamentally this book is an argument for, you know, why this country needs to have lower, uh, lower inequality, that when there's high inequality in a country, you know, what ends up happening is that the there's elite capture. So the uh, the wealth holders uh, influence the political system, but also they engage in what economists call rent seeking, which is basically uh, basically extracting profit that doesn't have any benefit for society. They could think hiring a bunch of accountants to lower your corporate tax bill, for example. So the the higher inequality is, the more incentive there is uh, for for elites to uh, to hoard that wealth and power, and the the less incentive there is for everybody else to bring their creativity, energy, and gifts to the table. Because if a country doesn't have high social mobility, and the U.S. no longer has that, it's hard to feel confident or optimistic that if you go the extra mile, that it's going to yield anything meaningful for you or your family. We haven't talked about. Uh, gender yet. And I think this also plays in. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that, how you see things like uh, our current gender norms, gender roles, stereotypes, that sort of thing as as playing into our issues that we have with inequality at present. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think the, you know, the way the way I talk about it in Rich White Men is that there's having unearned advantages associated with being male in ways that in many ways are similar to how those compounding under advantages show up if you're white or if you grow up in a wealthy family. And so so when we look at how how there is bias that favors men, you know, and diminishes women. So for example, there's all these studies that show that uh, you know that people pe- people of both genders typically believe that uh, you know, that men are uh, quote, more better leadership material or more likable. Uh, all of these things show up in subtle ways that impact the trajectories of people's lives and ultimately produce large disparities. So you could have a company that at an entry level, you know, is 50 50 uh, gender wise. Uh, but at each level, you're going to see a, a subtle decrease uh, in women until you get to the top of organizations, companies. Uh, you're going to see very few women at the top. Uh, that's a similar pattern to, you know, what we see for for race or socioeconomic status. That eventually, those advantages and disadvantages compound in ways uh, that lead to the most powerful people in society continuing to be almost always rich white men, uh, regardless of the the circumstances that they uh, grow up in. Now, unlike with race, though, I mean there are some. Uh, sort of clear differences with gender, right? And so I think some people would certainly say, well, yeah, there there are fewer women maybe at these positions of power because it's not men that that can get pregnant and have have kids. And then there's the argument about well, uh, maternal instincts, and not saying that fathers don't have them, but but that these this in part is explainable by some very real biological differences. And, and do you think there's something to that? Well, it's 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 very complicated and it's dicey territory. I think what I would say is that it is it's possible for uh, for people to have different roles in society, but for 
the power they experience still to be equitable. So like, for example, in the, the Haudenosaunee tribe before colonization, there was a system where, uh, this was hundreds of years ago, where it was still the case that the men were, were the chiefs, but all of the, all of the judges, uh, were women and, uh, the women held veto power over whether the country went to war. That it's it, the metaphor in the U.S. context might be something like having a male president uh, while having an entirely female uh, Senate and Supreme Court. You know, so there's ways that a society can uh, put in checks and balances so that uh, even if people have different roles, it doesn't mean that their uh, voice is marginalized or oppressed. Uh, and that's just not what has happened in this country. What has happened in this country is this notion that uh, that if you're someone who cares for children, which is one of the you know the most important things humanity needs to uh, survive and thrive, uh, that that's actually justification for you having less power in society. Uh, so that's how I think about it. I think maybe this is a good point to bring up intersectionality. And for a lot of folks on the left, it's a term uh, we're fairly familiar with. But my guess is that in sort of wider society, maybe people aren't even clear about what the term means in the first place and and, and why they should care about it. And I think this definitely plays into this. So uh, can you maybe first talk a little bit about what your sense of intersectionality is and why you felt you felt it was important enough to focus an entire chapter of your book on intersectionality and issues related to it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's a there's a chapter that explicitly focuses on it. And in many ways, the entire book about rich white men is very much uh, focused on intersectionality. And uh, as many of your listeners may know, you know, the history of that term was uh, Kimberly Crenshaw looking at it from a legal lens that the, if there, it was possible that there could be a company that was uh, discriminating uh, against uh, against women in certain roles and black people in certain roles. Uh, that, like, even if they weren't discriminating against those groups, it was still possible for them to discriminate against black women specifically. So it very much arose out of this uh, legal context. I think what what has emerged in the decades since is this notion that intersectional identities matter and are important in it. And I think because uh, you know, white men haven't been, uh, not that many white men have been engaged on the topic of intersectionality that I think people often associate it with being intersectionally oppressed, you know, whether it's black women or Latinx women and so uh, non-binary folks and so forth. Uh, but the reality is that every one of us has an intersectional identity. Uh, Rika Sen talks about this in her work that it really is the case that an intersectional identity is just the various combinations of identities that we hold. And uh, every one of us has a whole bunch of these, you know, so I'm, I am white and male and I grew up in a wealthy family. I'm straight. I'm Jewish. Uh, you know, you could go, you know, build a much longer list than that. And so uh, every one of these identities has, has some impact on, on my lived experience in this country. And that combination of identities uh, is actually unique. You know, so uh, intersectionality is actually a way of recognizing that every one of us has a unique experience and has something unique to uh, contribute. Uh, but 
we have to acknowledge those differences in order to celebrate that uniqueness. That if we actually deny it, uh, you know, then we're not able to tap into uh, the brilliance of of everyone's unique lived experience. But I, I guess from a, a public policy perspective or public understanding perspective, that also can make it difficult to grasp. Because if we can frame things in terms of, well, here's a problem with with rich people or with males or something like that, that that's that seems to me inherently easier to kind of grab onto than saying, well, you know, we all have maybe a half a dozen or more kind of key identities and a whole lot more than that. And things get pretty messy pretty quickly. And I think a lot of folks are uncomfortable with that. Yeah, I, I, that makes that I can understand where where they're coming from. And I, I think that the the reality is that not wading into that complexity uh, actually is one of the key strategies that rich white men in this country use to maintain power. Uh, that if you look at how, how power is structured around the world, you have, you know, India has the caste system with a, a handful of castes. Uh, South Africa have three racial identities. The U.S. has a handful. You know, the Western world uses the gender binary. That all of these are both simple categorizations uh, that uh, they only work if if they're very easy to identify and most of the population follows specific norms about how to treat people who who have those identity characteristics. So that when we start recognizing that all of us have very complex identities, uh, that it actually becomes impossible to, uh, you know, to, to treat people in as discriminatory of a way. So I, I think a big part of how, uh, you know, how we transcend uh, a culture of uh, systems of oppression is actually celebrating everyone's unique identity. Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Yeah, I've brought up rich white male advantage a, a lot. Well, maybe not a lot, but more than a few times on the podcast in the past. And I'll have these conversations with Jay and he'll I kind of regularly point out, hey, you know, by the way, we elected a black man president of the United States, not once, not not once, but twice and by comfortable margins. And that, you know, Michelle Obama was a couple of years ago named the most admired woman in America. And look at, I mean, Oprah Winfrey, she's Oprah Winfrey, for God's sake. And, and you know, there are three non-whites, four women on the Supreme Court. The current vice president is a black woman and, and, you know, so on. You could go on and on and on. And that's exactly Jay's point. And he's, I think, speaking for a lot of folks on the right who lo look at this and, and these arguments and say, well, if, if society is so racist and sexist near all these issues, how are all these women and people of color succeeding at the very highest levels? And I wanted to get your take on that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's definitely a topic that gets a lot of play. And I think one of the things that I want to emphasize is that uh, that when you look at who holds the the most power in this country, uh, that not only are uh, white women and people of color underrepresented, but they're actually dramatically more underrepresented uh, than I think many, many elites claim, you know, so. Yes, we have those exceptions out there, but it also, you know, if you if you look at who, who holds power in finance and technology, for example, which are the primary primary ways to build a lot of wealth in this country, that those are very white male dominated uh, professions. And if you go down the Forbes list, uh, that 
you know, that I remember going through this on the site that I had to go through dozens and dozens and dozens of white men uh, before I found a single person of color. And the person I found was a Chinese American man who actually made his fortune in China. And then you go down even further and further, you know, eventually you find Oprah Winfrey hundreds down, you know, so that yes, uh, there are these exceptions, but also like this is not a country where you know, the very wealthiest people, the Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk of the world, uh, those are all women. Uh, so when you look at who holds the most uh, capital in society and the greatest ability to change the direction of the country, that's a group that actually is, uh, you know, pretty much exclusively white men. And again, there's exceptions, but I think, uh, you know, what ends up being the case, particularly in business and in capitalism, capital is a source of power. Uh, that almost always rich white men end up on top. But we'd also, right, expect something of a, I guess, a generation or two lag effect. I mean, I could see a counter argument saying like, yeah, there's no questioning that we had uh, some really serious problems with racism and sexism in the ninth, up to the 1960s and 1970s even. I would find it hard to argue against that. But building this sort of generational wealth and generational advantages, well, that takes time. I mean, Elon Musk was born in 1971, I think, which means his dad was born, you know, probably, I guess, sometime in the in the 40s or something like that. And so maybe this is just part of the process and we just need to be patient and kind of let the process unfold. I, I got a feeling you're not entirely you wouldn't be entirely satisfied with that kind of response. Yeah, absolutely. And one term we haven't brought up, brought up yet is like this notion of tokenism. And I remember. Uh, you know, when one of the, one of the people who I talk I talked to on the along the way of writing this book is someone who's a uh, former former cabinet member for a recent uh, Democratic president, and you know that he you know when I told him that I was focused on you know issues of equity related to my career, he uh, really bristled at that, and you know seemed to think that that was a waste of time or maybe even problematic, and. You know, I remember saying to him, like, well, what about, uh, you know, what about your your president's cabinet that had more diversity than, you know, other cabinets previously? Didn't that, you know, help the president make better decisions for the country? And what he, you know, what he said was, he's like, look, those were mostly B and C players selected for uh, political reasons. And so you have this rich white man who's uh, in the room with these cabinet officials, uh, you know, who... He should have been thinking of his peers, you know, but he still has this condescending notion that he's superior to those folks, you know, and that's a, a view that, frankly, I think is is commonly held among rich white men. So that even when white women and people of color land powerful posts, they're not necessarily treated with the same level of uh, of respect and dignity uh, that other white men are. We see this on the Supreme Court, where male Supreme Court justices interrupt female. Supreme Court justices, you know, two or three times as often as they interrupt each other, you know, so there's this culture of uh, that white women and people of color are inferior to rich white men. And it's it's challenging to break that culture. Uh, and certainly having more white women and people of color in leadership positions is a step toward that. Uh, but it doesn't it doesn't wipe out that culture all at once by any means. Yeah, you know, I've certainly heard a lot of that myself. But I think generally speaking, when I when I ask people about they'd say something like, well, 
That's because I know that this person didn't have to meet the same standards I did, whether it was law school admissions or something like that, or at least there's suspicion that that might be the case. And so I, I certainly could see from the perspective, if you feel that somebody landed in a position without demonstrating the prerequisites that you had to demonstrate, that it might be reasonable to say, well, are they every bit as good if they didn't have to demonstrate the same uh, worthiness, I guess, for lack of a better word. It seems to me that's one of the arguments we hear on the right. And I wonder, do you, do you think there's something to that? It, it certainly is one of one of the arguments. I think the I think the way I see it is that I experience that argument as a as a fundamentally broken way of looking at our other human beings. Uh, so, for example, like when I think about you know the case of you know, the president's cabinet and this notion, this one cabinet member's notion that, you know, he's superior to the other cabinet members, maybe for the reasons that you describe. That's a, a totally, that's a specific way of, of looking at human value and worth. You know, that same man could have had a perspective that was like, oh, this person has different, a different journey, different lived experiences, different uh, perspectives than my own. And therefore, they're an equally important voice in this conversation, not a more important voice, but an equally important voice. And so, you know, this notion that there's specific measures of, quote, merit, uh, you know, which are all measures that uh, rich white men design and control, and that those are the only uh, only ways to measure a value of human, a human being is a fundamentally uh, problematic notion that I disagree with. Yeah, I, I guess I would also add to that that when people talk about unearned advantages for things like uh, uh, admission scores and so forth, they often don't think about the unearned advantage of wealth and that if you had a family that allowed you to, to get a expensive, fancy test prep service or put you into the best schools or something, those are unearned advantages too, but that tends not to come into the comp. We tend to forget the unearned advantages that help us, and we tend to focus on those that help maybe not us, I guess. That's, at least that's my experience. Absolutely. And a really good example of this is legacy admissions. Yeah. You know, that many of the rich white men in power, you know, were admitted to universities, at least in part because of their family, family ties, which is very much linked to family wealth and uh, race. You know, but, you know, most of the mainstream dialogue and affirmative action is is about race, not legacy admissions. You know, so, uh, you know, that I do think there's something about uh, you know, many rich white men believing that they're the top of the pile and therefore are uniquely equipped to judge who meets their bar uh, instead of actually looking at all human beings as as equals. And, you know, for me, like I try to do this even uh, even with my son, who's a toddler, that there's so many things that, you know, he's taught me. There's ways that he's connected to his, you know, intuition, his wonder for the world that I've forgotten or or was socialized out of me. So, you know, I try to uh, come into every interaction with every human being, believing that there's something I can learn, something that they have value, wisdom they uniquely hold. And I think if if more rich white men took that approach, I think they'd find that white women and people of color have a lot more to offer uh, than they currently credit them. So, you know, even let's say if, if someone agrees, you know, there are, yeah, there are serious, there are systemic inequalities in American society. I think there are still plenty of people would say, even so, you don't end discrimination 
by discriminating. You know, this this reverse discrimination, sometimes they'll say, well, it's unjust. You can even argue it's unconstitutional, depending on how you view the uh, Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that really what we should be shooting for is a colorblindness. A lot of times they'll talk about that line from uh, Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech, right? That my four little children will one day live in a nation where they be not, not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I think that resonates with a lot of folks. And I wanted to get your reaction to that. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's definitely a, a question that comes up a lot. And I think I think I would not dispute in the slightest the notion that, uh, you know, that that vision that Dr. King outlines is, you know, the aspiration I'm hoping for in this country. The question is, like, how do we get there as a nation? And is it is it possible to level the plane, you know, level a playing field that has been dramatically unlevel, you know, without trying to level it in some way? Uh, and so, you know, when I think about, uh, you know, when I think about issues like reparations, for example, you know, reparations in many ways, you know, is something that's very much focused on uh, the past and remedies for the past, but it's also about the future. That it's that it's about this country making a claim that uh, that it believes in the potential of Black people, and that everyone in this country, including Black people, uh, deserves capital so that they can succeed in the American capitalist system that we have. You know, so there's. Uh, I really think that there's there's no way around it that if you want to try to close massive racial disparities, uh, that there's no way to do that uh, without having race-based policies. And so when folks advocate for a colorblind approach, you know, but the, what that ends up producing in practice is just perpetuating uh, the status quo as it currently stands, which is uh, very unequal racially. I'm glad you mentioned reparations because it's it's become, I guess, more, much more of a thing. Not too long ago, we had in California, they have a reparations task force that approved some recommendations on on state compensation. There's talk that, you know, there could be cash payments of over a million dollars per person. And and I mean, there have been all kinds of cost estimates and, you know, the legislature will do whatever it does. But this could cost uh, some estimates hundreds of billions of dollars. And so I wanted to get your take. I guess uh, you talked a little bit about reparations in general, but sometimes the problem can be trying to find an implementation, even if you agree with the theory. And I, I expect you've at least thought, uh, you've seen a little bit about California's plan. Can you speak to that and, and what you think, and maybe more broadly, how you think reparations might best be structured, I guess, maybe is the way to put it? Sure. So, uh, so this is an issue that, I've spent a lot of time on directly as uh, as a co-creator of uh, Liberation Ventures, which is a philanthropic fund that's focused on building power uh, toward the for the reparations movement. Uh, it's also a topic that I uh, discuss at length in Rich White Men. That one of the one of the concepts I talk about in the book is this notion of generating a culture of uh, repair, uh, which is. Uh, something my colleagues uh, Ari and Alan have worked on a lot at Liberation Ventures, and it's this notion that you know that if some harm has been done, you know that I want to live in a society that repairs that. I, I don't want to live in a society that that sweeps that under the rug. And 
you know, the United Nations has very clear standards for what types of harms qualify for reparations. The United States is very much a textbook case uh, for it uh, related to uh, anti-Black racism and slavery in particular. And it's also the case that this country has provided reparations before, that it's provided reparations to uh, Japanese Americans who uh, were in internment camps. It's provided reparations to uh, victims of police torture, torture in Chicago. There's, you know, so there's a whole, uh, you know, whole history of this of this country providing financial remediation, uh, you know, in instances of harm. And so, you know, when I think about uh, America as a capitalist system, that capital is a, a source of power, a central source of power. And I don't see how anyone could argue that we offer equal opportunity in this country across racial lines uh, if Black people don't have the same access to capital that white folks do. And so, you know, closing the racial wealth gap, you know, if we're serious about uh, about equal opportunity, I think is something that needs to happen. And uh, you know, the racial wealth gap is about $11 trillion. It's a huge, it's a big number. Uh, you know, Dr. Sandy Darity in his book, he talks about how, you know, if you did that a, a trillion a year over a decade, that's about 5% of GDP. It's a similar scale to the Marshall Plan. But also, it's it's not just an expense, it's an investment that if this country, you know, invests in racial healing, if it invests in uh, creating a new social contract with Black Americans, if it invests in Black people, you know, all of all of those investments will pay off dividends, pay dividends for our democracy, our economy and society uh, more widely. And, you know, the, the government, whether it's city, state, federal, is a blunt instrument, uh, you know, but I think if we're going to try to take on something as massive as, as the racial wealth gap and systemic racism in this country, you do need you know, one or more big levers like reparations to really move the needle. I, I certainly am, am sympathetic to that argument, but I, I guess I wonder if reparations are the right way to approach it. I mean, you mentioned some other instances in which we have done reparations, but it seems to me that after so many generations, it, it raises the complexity enormously. And I wonder if that's just a, a, a bad way to, to frame it, and it might not be better to kind of not frame things in such a way where a lot of folks could say, well, you're focusing on the past and what do, I don't know, six or seven generations you know, removed from that have to, what's the linkage, as opposed to focusing on present day issues and not kind of linking things back to that. I, I, I don't know. It just seems, it seems like a big muddle to me. And, and But obviously you think reparations are worth spending a lot of time on as a concept. And so maybe you can kind of help me out with this. Absolutely. Yeah. I think. You know, reparations is about the past, the present, and the future, and 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 I won't I, I won't belabor the past here, given your question. You know, so when I think about where we are now in the future, the the main thing I, I think about here is the racial wealth gap, and and systemic racism is more complex than the racial wealth gap, and you know that addressing systemic racism is is more complex than writing a check. You know, but the question I always ask folks is. You know, that the racial wealth gap is something that we have right now. So regardless of how we got here and, and what you may or may not think is our moral responsibility for that history, what are we going to do about this $11 trillion gap now uh, that if we are going to say this country offers equal opportunity to Black people, how, how do we close that gap? 
And, and I personally have not seen any proposals that take a big bite out of that gap that don't have some redistributive component. They can take different forms, you know, maybe it's housing vouchers for black families who don't have to pay a down payment or it's forgiving student loans or, you know, there's there's other ways to look at it than direct cash. But I, I don't see any path to closing that kind of gap uh, without some sort of redistributive policy. And it's the case that the racial wealth gap is growing, uh, that it's grown since the 60s, even with civil rights reforms, it's grown uh, in democratic administrations in addition to Republican ones. And so uh, the, the least expensive time to close the racial wealth gap is actually today, uh, that that gap is compounding. Uh, so it's only going to be more and more expensive uh, for this country to address uh, racial inequity at some later point. Do you think it's uh, problematic in some ways to to focus on the wealth gap or inequality uh, through a race lens? Because I'm thinking when you mentioned policies, I'm thinking about a lot of policies or potential policies that would certainly address inequality, but would would apply to well, if you're a, if you're a poor white in Eastern Kentucky or, or a poor you know a poor black person in, in in downtown Cincinnati, what have you? And 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 I wonder if policies that focused more strictly on on that socioeconomic piece and not bring in race could both get more buy-in and potentially have a positive effect on more Americans. Or or is do you, do you think there is a compelling reason to make at least part of the focus on race? Absolutely. It's it's a big question. And I think there's a, from my perspective, there's a both and here. So like, for example, we talked a little bit earlier about the issue of concentrated poverty, you know, which I mentioned is something that uh, black and brown folks disproportionately experience compared to white folks. But there's still, I think, something in the neighborhood of three, four million uh, white people who live in concentrated poverty in this country that I would be uh, fully supportive of. And I, I mentioned, you know, some of these policy ideas in rich white men. You know, what does it look like for us to make major and major federal government Marshall Plan style investments uh, in high poverty communities across the country, regardless of race? What does it look like for us to provide universal health care uh, regardless of race? You know, so there's there's a, a number of policies that I think are very much supportive of this country becoming more equitable uh, for everyone, uh, including folks of color that are not race based. And it's the case that for Black and Indigenous populations in particular, they've seen a lot of of policies that were intended to be universalist not deliver benefits for their community specifically, whether it's, uh, you know, Black folks being left out of the GI Bill or, you know, exclusions being in place, uh, that there's all this history of you know, policies that are, quote, intended for everyone, uh, but somehow don't end up benefiting uh, Black and indigenous communities in the same way or even at all. So fundamentally, there's, you know, a, a lot of distrust uh, that uh, that people of color feel that policies that are not race-based will actually deliver the outcomes that are intended. And, I, and so when I think about a policy like reparations, uh, that a lot of it is establishing a uh, a new social contract with people of color in this country saying, look, you know, that we 
you know, we've struggled in the past to offer equal opportunity uh, and equity for people in this country uh, across racial lines. And we're, we're committed to doing things differently that if we don't restore that trust uh, in this country, uh, we're not going to have racial healing, even if we have some universalist policies that may or may not uh, deliver outcomes for communities of color. Got it. So, in other words, as part of sort of a a Marshall plan on inequality, it would be when you talk about a both and it would be maybe specifically targeted things like reparations, along with more universalist things like universal health care. And I would I would expect I would hope for some pretty significant changes to how we do work education in this country and things like that. Right. Oh, absolutely. And and I, you know, I think. One of the things that speaks so strongly to how these systems of oppression function is that if you're a wealthy white woman or you're a wealthy black man or you're a white man in poverty, you feel oppressed in this country. That's what, uh, you know, at least I, I can't generalize, but, you know, that's what many, many white women and people of color have told me that even if they have some of these advantaged identity markers, if you're even missing a single one, uh, they end up feeling oppressed, you know, so uh, we really do need to to look at these holistically and take on, uh, yeah, take on the different different elements, because if you're a white man living in poverty, uh, this is a tough country to live in and that there needs to be remedy for that. Uh, but that doesn't negate that uh, racial discrimination still exists. You know, I got to wonder as we wind down, it occurred to me, you mentioned that, you know, you came from a comfortable background and and obviously you went to some very good schools and, and that sort of thing. And so I wonder, on one hand, I could hear people, at least from the maybe from the left saying, oh, God, it's a rich white man trying to tell us how to solve problems with his group, how much faith should we put on that? On the other hand, I could hear people saying, well, he's speaking against his own interests, so maybe there's something to that. I, I, I don't know. What kind of, have you gotten both of those reactions, either of those reactions, or, or what? Oh, absolutely. Definitely, definitely gotten both of those reactions, and it's it's a it's a challenging place to, to play in because, you know, on the, on the one hand, the equity movement, it really is about uh, centering voices that have not been historically centered, uh, but at the same time, we also need uh, need privileged folks to uh, step up and advocate for for change within their communities. And it's a you know it's a messy, complicated process, which is why uh, why I've gotten both of those reactions that you mentioned. And I think the way I've come down on this over time is this notion that that it's it's not necessarily uh, problematic for me to use my voice, you know, which is a, you know, a, an exercise of power. I think the, the question is, you know, what steps are being taken to, to use that power accountably? And so, you know, for example, in my case, you know, that I worked with Alan uh, Pabita Frimpong, who's a, a movement philanthropy uh, consultant and strategist to design a royalties cooperative for this book. So social justice organizations are receiving 86% of what would have been my author royalties in exchange for serving as accountability partners for this uh, project, meaning that they offer guidance, perspective, they uh, ultimately have the right to criticize me publicly uh, if, if they so choose that that wouldn't have any impact on whether they receive royalties. So 
we have tried to put this structure in place where I acknowledge that me using my voice in this way could potentially impact the lives of white women and people of color. And so therefore, there's a need for me to operate within an accountability structure where where I'm accountable for that impact that I'm having. And that that doesn't mean I won't ever make mistakes, uh, but that if I do m- make mistakes, you know, those partners are going to are going to push me to to be aware of them and ultimately repair them. And I think that's an example of what accountable power can look like. That's very different than a you know, a white man going on to a podcast saying whatever they want, regardless of how people are impacted. And, and certainly uh, taking responsibility and accountability. I mean, those are those are bedrock conservative values. And so you would think at least on that level, there would be some at least if not buy an appreciation on the right for how you've set things up and, and, and so forth. Perhaps we'll see. <laughs> All right. I, I, I know that we're running out of time, but one last thing, because I like to end on a positive note, if possible. So uh, tell me at least one thing that makes you feel at least somewhat positive, somewhat optimistic about the future of inequality, uh, uh, racial, gender, uh, wealth in America. Sure. I think um, this may be random, but I'm going to go all the way back to the 1600s that in Ibram Kennedy's stamp from the beginning, he talks about how uh, the Mennonites, which are a, a sect of Christianity, were passing out abolitionist pamphlets in the 1600s, you know, almost 200 years before slavery was was ultimately abolished. And, you know, so, you know, when I think about, you know, the work uh, that I and others are doing on social justice uh, today, that, you know, that I think I'm sure in the 1600s, it felt nearly unimaginable uh, to the Mennonites that that slavery would eventually end. And those who were passing out those pamphlets didn't even see that change happen in their lifetimes. But with further organizing, activism, collectivism, those changes eventually eventually happen. And so, you know, that's, you know, one of the examples that really motivates me is that the notion that, uh, you know, in the long-term time horizon, major structural and cultural change changes are possible. And I, I try to, uh, stay focused on on the long view and hopeful about uh, the long view, and know that there's been people in this country from the very beginning who've been fighting for a just America and, and succeeding, uh, even if it's taken longer in some cases than many of us would have hoped. Or I guess going back to Dr. King, as he said, right, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. And uh, let's certainly hope so. And that is an optimistic note to close on. Garrett Nyman, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. We hope you enjoyed this Politics Guys interview. And if you did, we'd really appreciate it if you could mention us on social media or however else you share things you like. It would also be great if you could rate and review us on your podcast app. If you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, manifesto, whatever, you want to share it with us, you can reach us a bunch of ways. Mail at politicsguys.com, as well as there's our supporters-exclusive Discord channel, and we're also on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to become a supporter of the show, you can find out more about that at patreon.com slash politicsguys or politicsguys.com slash support. And links to all that are always in our show notes. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andre Masker, Daniel Toe, and Ryan Beasley. We'll be back with a new episode this coming weekend. We hope you'll join us.